Hi friends, Pastor Dave here, and it's great to be with you today as we dive into week two of our series through the Old Testament book of Habakkuk that we're calling Seriously God. And I have to tell you that we titled our series this way because as pastors Paul and Bethany told us last week, Habakkuk is a book written by a guy in the Old Testament who has some serious questions for the Lord. Habakkuk lived in a time when things were not going well in Israel. In fact, as Habakkuk looked around his culture, he saw a lot of bad stuff. Listen again to just a few of the words that Habakkuk uses to describe what's happening in the first four verses of this book. Violence, injustice, wrongdoing, strife, conflict. The law is paralyzed. Justice is perverted and never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous. Friends, this is a time when parents are worried about their kids growing up in this culture. This was a time when grandparents were concerned about the future for their grandkids. Eugene Peterson's translation, The Message, says it this way. Anarchy and violence break out. Quarrels and fights all over the place. Law and order fall to pieces. Justice is a joke. The wicked have the righteous hamstrung and stand justice on its head. That's what Habakkuk sees. And yet, he doesn't have a beef with the people around him. He doesn't point to the world and the culture and say, you have a problem. Instead, Habakkuk has a beef with God and his beef goes like this. God, do you not see all that's happening? God, do you not care about what's going on around us? Seriously, God, why in the world are you not doing something about all the sin and evil I see constantly surrounding me? And friends, times change, but people don't. And so much of what Habakkuk experienced and saw as he looked around his world is what many of us see as we look around our world. You see, this is not just an old book. It's an eternal book, which means it's always very timely. That's true of all of Scripture. It's certainly true of Habakkuk. And so maybe like Habakkuk, you have some questions for God. Maybe you see some things that aren't right and you want to ask God about those things. And what's great about this book is that God responds. This book is a dialogue. Last week, God told Habakkuk that he does, in fact, see all the evil in Israel and that he does plan to do something about it. He is going to send the Babylonians to overthrow them. But this was not the answer that Habakkuk wanted It's not what he was looking for. And and so as we dive into Habakkuk's response today, he's responding to God's response. This is Habakkuk's response to God's response. What are you going to do about all this evil God? I'm going to send the Babylonians. And now here's what Habakkuk has to say about that. Chapter 1, verse 12. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Friends, this is Habakkuk pretty much saying, God, your answer, your response makes no sense to me. Because who I know you to be, the all-powerful God who's holy, 
set apart from the sinfulness and corruption of this world, a God who is too pure to look on evil and who cannot tolerate wrongdoing, who I know you to be, does not line up with what you're telling me, God. Because you're telling me you're going to use the Babylonians, this evil, brutal, godless people, as your instrument of discipline for us. God, this doesn't make sense. Ever been there? (laughs) Ever felt that way? Ever had those feelings? Ever been in a place where who you know God to be doesn't line up with what you see him doing or not doing in your life? God, your word says that you can heal. So the doctors say it's cancer and are you going to heal? God, it says that you can change heart. Well, my spouse has walked away from our covenant. So when are you going to grab their heart and bring them home? Lord, I know you have the ability to redirect a wayward child. So God, how come my kid is still out there? How come you haven't brought him back? God, at my job... They fired me, and I'm the one who does all the work. And then my boss got a raise with what I lost. Why, Lord? Why do you tolerate this? Why do you allow evil and injustice and sin and these these destructive forces to continue to rule in the world and defeat us? Why, God, are you silent about this stuff? Verse 14. You have made people like the fish in the sea, like the sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet, and so he rejoices and is glad. Now, these verses can seem a little strange to us, but here's what Habakkuk is saying. He's saying, God, I don't see you ruling us. I don't see you giving us protection or direction. In fact, you've left left us like fish swimming aimlessly about in the sea to be scooped up and caught by the evil forces of this world. And again, for Habakkuk, this moment is personal. These are people that he loves. This is a nation that he cares deeply about. And this is what he sees happening Maybe you can relate to this. Maybe you're a parent and you're watching your kid just get scooped up by the sexualized culture all around us. Or maybe it's drugs that has its hooks in you or in someone you love. Or perhaps it's materialism or racism or greed or an endless pursuit of success or popularity or acceptance. But you look around our country and you wonder, God, how long will you let this go on? How long will you let the evil forces of this world win? Will you not step in and do something about it soon? God, it feels like we're just fish swimming helplessly along being hooked and caught all the time. Habakkuk continues, verse 16. Therefore he sacrifices to his net, he's again talking about the evil forces, and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? Again, Habakkuk talking about the Babylonians, and he's saying, not only are they oppressive, not only do they dominate people and promote evil and injustice every single place they go, they also celebrate this way of life and they seem to profit from it. Friends, how many examples of this can you think of in our world today? People doing something immoral or evil or unjust and not only are they getting away with it, they're making a profit 
from it, maybe even getting rich. How would you feel if God said, I'm going to use that person, those people, that group, that sinful, corrupt community or corporation to discipline you? If you can imagine how that would feel, then you get a little taste of how Habakkuk feels here. How could you use them, God? Of all people, when are you going to show us some mercy and put an end to all of this? And now we get to chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2. It's in this chapter where we get a picture from Habakkuk of how to respond when God doesn't act in a way that makes sense in the face of evil, suffering, and sin in your world. How do you respond when God doesn't act in a way that makes sense in the face of evil, suffering, sin, and corruption in your world? Here we go. Chapter 2, verse 1. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest. Again, here's our question. How do we respond when God doesn't deal with evil in the way that we think he should? I'm going to give you two things today. Just two things, but they are packed. Here's number one. Stand in patient obedience. Stand in patient obedience. When you read this this dialogue, um, Habakkuk starts off by lobbing his complaint and then he waits for God to respond and make sense of all this evil and suffering and injustice that Habakkuk is seeing. And, And God says to Habakkuk, I'll give you an answer. I'll give you a revelation. I'll help you see what I can see. I'll help you see what you can't see on your own. But then in verse three, he says, though it linger, this is God talking about his response, though it linger, wait for it. The ESV says, If it seems slow, wait for it. Friends, does God ever seem slow? Does it ever seem like his timing and your timing aren't lined up? Like the situation is now, it's dire, it's urgent, and God just seems to be lingering in his response, slow to take action. Have you ever experienced this? Have you ever felt this way? The word wait in this verse is a Hebrew word that means be patient. It means don't give up. Like if you're, you're waiting for the bus and the bus hasn't come yet, don't leave. Like if you're sitting in the waiting room to see the doctor and your name is not being called, you don't get up and leave. You just stay. You just remain. You wait. And friends, that's what Habakkuk is doing. That's what we see him doing in this passage. Right away in verse one, it says, he says this. He says, I will stand at my watch. Now I'm I'm a military kid. And so I can recognize military language when I read it. This is military language. This is Habakkuk saying, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of my confusion, I will be obedient and wait. I'll just keep doing my duty. I will keep following my calling. And friends, 
That's in sharp contrast to how the world deals with lingering struggle. It's in sharp contrast. In fact, God alludes to this contrast in our very passage. Look down at verse 4 with me, if you will. Verse 4 says, this is God speaking. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. This is God talking about an arrogant, unrighteous response. And then listen to what he says next. There's a little statement in the middle that we'll come back to. But he he says this. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest. Why Why does God, right in the middle of this thing, mention wine? Seems kind of weird that he just kind of throws it out. Well, he mentions wine as a way of saying that we are all, every single one of us, tempted to engage things that will help us to avoid the reality of our suffering. We're all tempted to do this. We're all tempted to engage things that will help us avoid the reality of our struggles. Times get hard, I pour a drink. Things get difficult, I escape into Instagram or Netflix or novels or food or sex or my new favorite these days, online chess. And friends, I'm not saying any of these things are bad in and of themselves, but, but when we avoid and escape the hard realities of our lives, it may comfort us for a little while, but we're told here that this is not the path of the righteous. This is not a path that will lead to peace. Wine eventually betrays. Escapism and avoidance eventually betray us. They don't lead to long-lasting joy and happiness. Friends, let me ask you, are you tempted, and these days especially, are you tempted to use something in your life to avoid and or escape reality? Are you tempted to use something in your life to avoid or escape reality? If so, remember this, God is calling us, his people, the righteous, to stand in patient obedience, just like Habakkuk. That's point one. Here's point two. Seek a humble perspective. Seek a humble perspective. We're told right away in verse one that Habakkuk stations himself on the ramparts. It's not a word we use all that often, but in the ancient world, cities built ramparts or walls or towers so they could climb up there and look out and see what was coming. They could see if if an enemy was coming or if an embassy was coming or if traitors were coming or if there was a storm on the horizon. Because once you climbed to the top of the rampart, to the top of the tower, you you got a much broader perspective. And so when Habakkuk says, spiritually, of course, he's speaking spiritually, I'm going into the tower, I'm going up onto the ramparts. He's saying, I don't want to just see this situation from my perspective. I want to see this situation, God, from your perspective. I want to see what you see. In fact, if you read verse one carefully, which I hope you will, you'll notice that Habakkuk says this. He says, I'm climbing the tower to wait for your response. And at the very end, what answer I am to give to this complaint? Or maybe a better translation is, and what to answer when I'm rebuked? I'm climbing the tower to hear from you, Lord. And then I'm going to think about what I'm going to say once you rebuke me. 
See, Habakkuk already knows that he's going to be rebuked. He already knows enough about God to know that God sees things differently than he sees them, that he has a different plan than he does, and that God is probably going to rebuke his bad attitude in the midst of this situation. Habakkuk knows this. He's prepared for this. And yet, and yet, what does Habakkuk do? He still climbs that tower. He says, give it to me, Lord. Give me the correction I need because I desperately need your perspective in the midst of this struggle. Now, friends, how many of us wouldn't do this? How many of us, if we're honest, would, are just too stubborn, too arrogant, too proud to do what Habakkuk does here? How many of us in the midst of, of our struggle or difficulty that God wasn't handling the way we wanted him to handle it would say, God, I don't want to see it from your perspective. I want you to see it from my perspective. God, I don't want to fit into your plan. I want you to get busy executing my plan. God, I don't want to hear your correction because I think you need to be corrected by me. How many of us have had that posture and that attitude with the Lord? You see, the real question here is this. Are we so arrogant that we think we know better than God? Are we just like the Babylonians? Are we so arrogant that we think we know better than God? Are we so proud that we refuse to believe that maybe our way, our thinking, our ideas, our perspective is not the best way? The New Living Bible translates verse 4 like this. Look at the proud. They trust in themselves and their lives are crooked. See, there's a contrast here, again, between the way of the righteous and the unrighteous. The unrighteous trust in themselves. They trust in only what they know and what they can see. They let the circumstances of the world drive the decisions of their life. Listen to that again. The unrighteous let the circumstances of the world drive the decisions of their life. But not Habakkuk, not the righteous. God says, I'm calling you to trust in what I know and what I can see because my perspective comes from a much higher vantage point than yours. Friends, the central verse, the key phrase of the entire book of Habakkuk is this little statement we skipped over earlier, right in the middle of verse four. I'll read it from the ESV. The righteous shall live by his faith. Or, or the righteous shall live by her faith. Friends, this is such an important statement. Such, it's such a central concept that three times, it's quoted three times in the New Testament. And the idea here, the, the question is ultimately, do you trust yourself do you trust yourself? Do you trust what you see? Do you trust what you think? Do you trust what you experience? Is that your highest authority? Or, or do you ultimately have faith in the Lord? Do you trust in him? Do you have a deeper conviction that, that runs deeper and firmer and more, more solidly beyond what you see and think? Do you have this deeper conviction that God can see things that you can't see and that he has a plan that you don't understand? That's called faith. Friends, the Bible says we walk by faith, not by sight. Sight is something we see. Faith is something we trust God sees. I'll say that again. Sight is something we see. 
Faith is something we trust God sees. You know, in our world, there's a real popular saying. I know you've heard it. I'll believe it when I see it. I'll believe it when I see it. That's sight. That's the way the world operates. Faith says, I'll believe it until I see it. I'll believe it until I see it. That's faith. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. I'll believe it until I see it. Friends, God knows tomorrow, you don't. God knows forever, you don't. God knows every hair on your head, every day of your life, every desire of your heart. God knows. He knows it all. Here's another little definition of faith for you. Trusting what you read in the word until you see it in the world. Trusting what you read in the word until you see it in the world. Trusting what God says until you see it for yourself. One pastor I read this week talked about a loom. And I love this analogy. Um, you know what a loom is, right? Yeah, a loom is a machine that helps you weave fabrics or tapestries or rugs. And if you've ever seen a loom, what you realize is that underneath the loom, when you get underneath the loom and you look at the back side of the garment, where all the work is done, where all the strings are cut and the knots are tied. If you get underneath that loom, things aren't pretty. They're, in fact, they're, they're sometimes ugly and they're messing and they're completely confusing. And you wonder, how is anything good going to come out of this? But when you rise up and you look at that same garment or that same piece of fabric from the other side, from above the loom, all of a sudden, things really start to make sense. There's symmetry and there's artistry and there's a combination of colors that come together that oftentimes make something so beautiful. And friends, what you and I must understand as we walk through this life is this. We live underneath the loom. And often from down here, things don't look so good. They're ugly and messy and really confusing. But friends, I will tell you this. The scriptures say it, and I believe it. The Lord Jesus Christ is alive and well. He's high and exalted. He's seated on the throne, and he's on the other side of the loom. And he's knitting together history, including your life and destiny. And he knows exactly what he's doing. And someday, when you are seated with him in glory, you will be smiling and rejoicing, and your faith will be sight. But between now and then, until then, until your faith becomes sight, you walk by faith. You walk by faith. You believe it until you see it. You trust that even though you can't see it, God knows it. Even though you're not in control of it, he owns it. That's walking by faith, friends. That's our call. That's Habakkuk's call to you and me as we walk through this broken, damaged world and its struggles. That we would stand together in patient obedience and that we would seek a humble perspective as we walk by faith. Let me pray for you, friends. Father, that is our prayer. That we would walk by faith. That we would trust more in who you are and what you say than what we see right in front of us in this world. 
that you would give us the ability to know that, Lord, even though we, that we live underneath the loom, that you live above the loom and that you are, you are weaving things together, that you are making a tapestry of our lives and of all of a history, Lord, that will lead to our good and your glory. Give us faith to believe that, Lord. Hold us, help us to hold on to that hope as we walk with you as your people in this world. That's our prayer, God. And we pray, Lord, especially for these days, these days that we're living in right now, these days where we see so much brokenness, so much injustice, so much hurt, so much pain, so much confusion. Help us, Lord, to be people of faith in the midst of this world. That's our prayer. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.